Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elder team members here. I'm also on the preaching team with um, Andrew, Matt, and Jeff. Um, it's a joy to be able to preach for you this morning. We're going to be in Acts 17, if you want to turn there as we get started. We're <coughs> picking up right after where Jeff left off last week. Um, and as we get into this last section of the book of Acts... It turns very narrative. A lot of it is just the story of the journeys of Paul and the other apostles. So before I wanted to dig in, I kind of wanted to give you a picture to give you a mindset of where we're at in the world for this. So I put this map up. So this is the Mediterranean Sea. So where we are at, this is considered the second missionary journey of Paul. Where if you look up on the top, there's the Aegean Sea. I don't know if you'll be able to read these, but you'll at least get an idea of where we're at. So in chapter 17, where we're at, we open up in Thessalonica, which is that number five, kind of right on the top of the Aegean Sea there. So we have Thessalonica, and then he makes his way to Berea, and then way down the coast there is Athens, down on the bottom, number seven. So those are the three cities that we're at in this chapter. And this, from my best estimate, this chapter in Acts covers probably about a month to maybe even three months worth of time, just with all the traveling that they had to do in that area. So it's kind of important for us to remember as we're reading through the book of Acts, everything seems so action-packed. But there's a tremendous amount of time between things that are happening, a lot of time these people are just doing life and living. Um, so keep that in mind as we get into these future chapters as we go. Um, but yeah, open your Bible to Acts 17 and um, pray with me as we start. Father, I just ask that you would clear my mind this morning, clear my heart, um, and just fill me with your spirit as we look at your word. Help me present it clearly and honestly. Lord, I just pray that you would bless this group of people as we look at your word together this morning. We lift this up in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. So if you remember last week, it was Paul and Silas in prison. There was the earthquake. They were released from prison. And they're just continuing their journey. So what we're going to do with this chapter, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we're just going to kind of walk through it every couple verses, and we'll stop and kind of talk about what's going on, because um, there's a lot of stuff in this chapter. And luckily, I get to preach next week as well. So I didn't quite have to worry about how long this ended up being, because whatever we don't get through, I'll just do next week. So, um, so let's start. Acts 17. Verses 1 through 3. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So looking back at the map, if you can put that back up there, they're kind of, they're making their way across, right by that Philippi and Neapolis, they're making their way across the top of the Aegean Sea there. And they come to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer 
and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So again, in this sentence, in verse 2, that's three weeks of time. He spent three Sabbaths preaching in the synagogue. Three weeks go by in that one sentence. And he's explaining through the Scriptures that the Christ had to die. We get a glimpse here into Paul's strategy. He does this time and time again as he goes into a city. He preaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath day because everyone was gathered there. And keep in mind, too, at this time, Christianity and Judaism were still very much mixed together. They're not as separate as they are today. Christianity was kind of seen as a sect of Judaism. So for Paul to go into a Jewish synagogue and preach this is not as weird as it sounds to us today, because that's where all the Jews would meet, and he's going to preach to them about their Messiah. So what he's doing is he's taking the Old Testament, and he's arguing through the Old Testament that the Christ had to die. And then he's taking those arguments and those proofs and saying it's Jesus who was the Christ. And that's how he's preaching. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. There's going to be three sections where we see Paul preaching in this chapter. At the end of every one, it tells us a phrase like that, a lot of the leading women believed him and followed him. It's kind of interesting and unique to this chapter, but we see it after every single presentation of the gospel that Paul does. So now we see kind of the, the flip side of what happens. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the Jews are not happy about Paul's preaching, and I, I guess somehow they know where there's rabble in the town, and they, I guess all the rabble hang out together at one spot, and they find them and get them to riot and create a mob, and they come to Jason's house, this poor guy who we don't know anything about. There's kind of two options on who he was. Either he was a person who had just become a believer through Paul's preaching in Thessalonica, and invited Paul and Silas to stay with him, or he was a believer before and a friend of Paul and Silas. And when they came to Thessalonica, they stayed with him. But somehow, the Jews knew that Paul and Silas were staying with Jason. So they get this mob started. They go to Jason's house. Paul and Silas aren't there. And so they take Jason out and a couple other people they find. And they bring him before the city council the city assembly. So, verse 6. When they could not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people... And the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Keep, keep in mind, in the Roman Empire, to say there was another king aside from Caesar was treason. 
That was rebellion against Rome. So if you're in your little town of Thessalonica and you get wind that someone's starting to say there's another king, that's not a good thing. That's why it worried the city authorities. We get a glimpse here too of how Christianity is starting to gain traction here. Look at what, look at what he says about these guys. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, granted, he's probably exaggerating a little bit to try and condemn these guys, but still, the teaching is starting to gain traction. This is becoming an empire-wide phenomena. People are realizing something's going on. Now, so then, uh, verse 9, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Basically, they, they find them. They said, okay, pay this much, we'll let you go. That was incredibly lenient in those days. It's most likely because they didn't get Paul and Silas. They just got Jason and some random guys. So they're probably like, well, just pay a fine and we'll let you go. As we come into the next few verses, read verse 10. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, which again is just down the coast. It's the next city away. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue again. In Greek cities, which is where they are, they're in Greece, each city was on its own, basically. There was no central government controlling all this stuff. So if you were declared guilty or wanted in Thessalonica, which is what Paul and Silas were, if you went to the next town over Berea, they have no idea who you are. You're not wanted there. So... Paul and Silas are wanted in Thessalonica. All the believers get together and they're saying, okay, look, you, you guys have been here long enough, you got to go. You're wanted. If you're found in public again, you're probably going to get arrested. So they tell them to go. Go to the next town, go to Berea. And so the brothers immediately send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Traveling by night was not a casual thing back then. You didn't have light or a compass, or maps, unless you had a torch or something. So traveling by night was pretty dangerous. So this is an extreme thing. They sneak out in the middle of the night to go to the next town. So they get to Berea, and again, Paul does the exact same thing. Starts preaching in the synagogues. Go to verse 11. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It's <laughs> kind of funny. How, I mean, there's no such thing as Minnesota nice in the book of Acts. He basically just straight up says, yeah, these people were better than those people in Thessalonica. But he gives us a reason why they were noble. The end of verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We should assume Paul's preaching the same way. He's opening up the Old Testament saying the Christ has to die for us. And Jesus is that Christ. And they eagerly take this teaching and search in the scriptures daily to see that it's true. We need to take a lesson from the people at Berea. This Berea has become synonymous with passion for scripture and truth because of this text. I've heard it say you need to be like a Berean and search the scriptures out. There are churches named after Berea. 
So, is knowledge of the Scriptures and study of the Bible a daily priority for you? It's a big book. There's more than enough in there for a lifetime of daily study. What kind of priority does daily searching in the Scriptures have in your life? Is it before or is it after your favorite TV show or sport or recreation or hobby? That's a big one for me, just random hobbies. Be diligent in searching Scriptures daily. You need to devote your life to this because that's how long it's going to take. I came up with a phrase for you to remember. And this is how you take everything in. Teaching about God, teaching in your life about how to live. You eagerly eat, but discerningly digest it. It's a little graphic, but it'll help you remember it. You eagerly eat and discerningly digest. So when you hear things telling you how to live, you hear things about God, you eagerly take it in. And you chew on it. Chew on it through the lens of Scripture and daily Bible study. And if it doesn't taste good, you spit it out. But if it tastes sweet and aligns up with Scripture, then you eat it and you live it. That's how we are to do our life and our daily Bible study. You eagerly eat and you discerningly digest. Last few verses of this section, starting verse 12. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. There's that note again about the women of high standing that believed. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's like a hobby with these guys at this point. We'll see this a lot in the book of Acts too. The Jewish leaders are really good at making riots. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So this situation may have been a little bit different. It was probably aimed directly at Paul instead of Silas and Timothy. So Silas and Timothy say, okay, look, Paul, you got to get out of here. We'll stay behind and help these believers get this church started. So they send Paul off down the coast. Athens is the next major city. So it says, verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul makes his way. I'm sure he wasn't alone. He probably had a group of people with him. Makes his way down the coast to Athens. Once he gets there, he sends word back to Berea for Silas and Timothy to come meet him there. This is, this is weeks of time traveling. This was not a quick thing. He had to travel all the way down to Athens and then send word back to Berea. And then they were going to travel all the way down to Athens. So that's where we're at when we come to Paul in Athens. This is a very famous passage. He's constantly looking for opportunities to share the gospel. He's never, he never wastes a day. So while he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to Athens, which again would have taken a while, he's moved by the state of the city 
that he's in. Athens is full of idols. This is a polytheistic society. Here's a description of the sea. Well, let's read uh, 16 and 17 first. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Here's a description I found of Athens. Some majestic temples on Athens' Acropolis, such as Athena's temple, the Parthenon as we know it, were visible from afar. Sanctuaries and images stood even in Piraeus and other ports of Athens. The second century travel narrator Pausanias, I think I said that right, depicts in detail the various idols that consumed so much of the public space in Athens, one could not avoid them. Shrines filled the Agora and the Acropolis. City streets were often lined with statues of men and gods, and Athens was also decorated with pillars mounted with the head of Hermes. Many visitors wrote of Athenian piety. From an ascetic standpoint, Athens was unrivaled for his exquisite architecture and statues. Paul's concern was not aesthetics, however, but the impact of idols on human lives. This is an incredibly beautiful city, both in architecture and its art. I mean, Athens is still a tourist destination today because of that. But Paul begins preaching in this atmosphere of idolatry to the Jews. And he does the same thing. He preaches in the synagogues, but here he does something a little bit different. He preaches in the marketplace every day to people who were just walking by. He turns into a street preacher. In Athens, I'll kind of give you a little background before we read this section because it makes it crystal clear what's going on. In Athens, if a person was not officially recognized as an orator, a gifted speaker, or an influential speaker, they could always speak freely in the marketplace to whoever wanted to listen. Whoever passes by would be able to hear them, but this was not an official speaking engagement. He spoke there every day, and eventually the intellectual elite of the city, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, as we'll see here, they get wind of this teaching, and they start listening to him. They're interested in what he is saying. So here's another quote. Rome had made Athens a free city. It had its own ruling bodies, city council, city assembly, and the highest of all, the Areopagus. It was Athens' chief court, consisting in this period of probably roughly 100 elite members. They had authority to evaluate new cults coming to town, and city officials would also evaluate potential lecturers who sought official platforms, though mere discussion in the marketplace would require no accreditation. So knowing that, Let's read 18 through 21. And look at what's happening here. It's crystal clear what's going on. 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So he's preaching in the marketplace, and the city officials hear it, and they're thinking, "Mm, maybe we should check this out. This sounds like something new, so we need it evaluated. So they bring him before the Areopagus, which is the ruling body that determines what gets to be taught in Athens at that time. So we come to Paul preaching in the Areopagus. Now, the, the Areopagus is also at an actual location called the Areopagus. So there's a ruling body called the Areopagus, and there's a place called the Areopagus. He probably spoke in and to both of them. This passage we're going into is a very famous passage. It is taught in every Bible college everywhere for contextual missions. Okay, the idea for contextual missions is when you're going into a foreign culture that you don't know, one thing to do, which is what Paul does here, is you find an element of that culture that that the gospel can fit into, and from there you can preach the gospel, and they'll understand it because there's a part of that culture that you're attaching onto. A simpler way I've heard it explained is called the pancake principle. I love making pancakes, and in order to make a good pancake, you have to flip it without ruining it. So the pancake principle is you take the spatula and you've got to search the edge of the pancake to get a spot where you can slide the entire spatula under, and then you can flip it. It's the same, same thing. That's contextualization. You're looking for an area you can get in and then preach the gospel. So let's look at what Paul does here. This is genius. Verse 22, so they they bring him before the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's walking through Athens seeing all these idols, And he sees one, they have one to an unknown God just in case they miss one. And he says, that's the God I'm proclaiming to you. This is genius. Okay, but what do you notice Paul doesn't do here? Unfortunately, this is something that we as churches are very good at. He doesn't condemn them for their idolatry. He doesn't run in guns blazing saying, how can you live in all this idolatry? Shame on you. He walks in and he says, you must be very religious to have all these idols. And what Paul does in the next few paragraphs is he presents a gospel of clarity. A gospel of reality, not a gospel of changing your behavior. He is simply speaking what actually is, not how you should act. He gives them a gospel lovingly of just clarity and reality of how the universe works. And I think it's that that causes them not to throw him out. He gives them a gospel of light, truth, and clarity, not judgment, not condemnation. And the next few verses, we'll start looking into Paul's message. 
The sermon's incredible. And we're going to walk through it line by line and look at how he explains God to these people. Verse 24. So he says, you have this idol for an unknown God. It's this God I proclaim to you. And here's how he explains our God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. God has created the world and everything in it. He starts by talking about God as the origin of all things. He's created everything. And there's a purpose behind this, though. Keep in mind where he's at. Athens, full of idols, full of temples. He says God created everything, and he doesn't live in your temples. God does not dwell in temples made by man. He doesn't dwell in buildings. This has direct implication for us. Okay, there's no place you can go that gives you better access to God. There's no building or institution, for that matter, that has a monopoly on access to God. He doesn't dwell in buildings. This building, it's not some sort of a spiritual conduit that makes God arrive here better. It's just a building. Look at how Jesus explained it. You can turn there if you want in John 4. John 4, verse 19. This is where Jesus is talking to a woman at a well. This woman has had five failed marriages and is now living with a man who's not her husband. And Jesus tells her this before she tells him. And like any normal person, instead of talking about that, she dodges the subject and asks a question about something else. So here's what she says, verse 19, John 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not where you worship, it's the way you worship. It's not in the correct building it's in the correct spirit and in the correct truth that you see God. You don't have to go somewhere. You have to be a certain way. It doesn't dwell in temples. So how does this impact us? Well, there is in the New Testament almost nothing written about the format of our service here. It says nowhere in the New Testament you need to do three to four songs before the sermon. Nowhere. Okay, but here's what that means. It means that God is free to go anywhere. He's a global God. You can experience Him anywhere, anytime, anyhow, and you don't need a sound system or guitars or drums or an organ. You don't even need to speak English. He's a global God for all people. He does not dwell in temples made by man. 
there's a bit more. What does Paul say? He does not dwell in temples made by man. God does dwell somewhere. This is a full other sermon in itself. But Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. I'll just read it quick. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're the temple. He doesn't dwell in temples made by man. He's, he's building his own, and it's you. The Spirit dwelling in you. We're knit together. Like I said, that's a whole other sermon. Next verse, 25. It gets even better. So, God's created everything. He doesn't dwell in temples, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You be careful how you serve God, or you might start to think He needs something from you. He doesn't need anything from anybody. In fact, more than that, He's given you everything. What are you going to give him that he hasn't given you? This is a shocking way to come from what he just said. There's a God who's created everything. He's given everyone everything. He doesn't dwell in temples. He created the universe. Everything flows from him. So what would be next, logically? Serve him or he'll crush you. Well, what does Paul say? He doesn't need anything from you. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. <laughs> what does this say about the character of this God? Grace, mercy, generosity. It's verses like this that make me love the Bible and know it wasn't written by man's own thinking. We don't come up with this stuff. Jesus talked this way too. Matthew 20. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a crazy, seemingly upside-down God. But where, where does this leave us? Because obviously, the Bible says to serve God. It's all over, okay? So, it's not just a blanket, don't serve God. There's, there must be a way that we serve him. And Jesus gets at a little here. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The way you serve is to serve people. You serve others. The way you serve God is to serve other people. The hard part 
for us is letting God serve us. That's where we stumble. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve you. And there's a glimpse in 1 Peter, which we just went through, of how this works. Peter's talking about spiritual gifts and serving each other in the church. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. How do you serve? You serve people by the strength that God gives you to serve. You're a conduit of God's service to other people. That's how you serve. You let God serve other people through you, and that's how He serves you. And through that, He is glorified. He looks good. Running low on time. A couple closing thoughts as we end. We've seen here Paul starting to reveal who God is, the reality of who God is to the leaders at Athens. Fight in your life to keep the real God in your sights. Fight for clarity as to who God is. And other than daily being in the Bible, I'm not sure how you do that. I don't have anything else for you. (laughs) Just read the Bible. Because that's where He is. You see Him there. And as you begin to soak that, all of a sudden things start looking differently. The hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. I love that song. But that's what happens as you continually feed on the word. Things look different. You start processing things differently, and you live differently. Second thing, when you present God, do it lovingly. Present a God that is simply, that is who He is. Don't aim at behavior change. Just present who God is and who He is to you. Because people can tell if you're just saying stuff. Present who God is to you. And people will fall in love with that because God's amazing. He's lovely. And people will love it. Let's pray together in closing. Father, I thank you for your word, for the things it says that are just seemingly crazy. And Lord, I thank you for Paul, for his preaching, for his spirit, for his energy level, for all that he did and went through. And I thank you for preserving it in words so that we could read what he did. And his sermon can still impact us today. Father, I pray that you would grant us clear sight of you and let that work down into our soul as we try to live out accordingly who you are and how you act, how you relate to us. Lord, help us to show that off to the people around us. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.